0: I had, and now here that I have.
1: Thank you, brother. Well, if you haven't already done so, I want to invite you to find that passage in your copy of God's Word, the book of Philippians chapter 1, and I'm excited for uh, this study. Um, I asked... Rick, if he would read the entire first chapter to just get us a feel for what's what's going on and what uh, the Apostle Paul is uh, getting us into as we uh, begin to walk through this um, spectacular and powerful little book together. I'm glad you're here to worship with us today, and I'm glad you're here to, to study this, this book with us. Um, I... I I, uh, I won't do a show of hands. I usually try to avoid those sorts of things just because, um, y- you know, you never know what's coming after uh, the pastor says, hey, okay, let's raise your hands if. Um, so I won't do a show of hands, but I, I, I don't know if any of you here have spent any time in prison before. Again, we're not going to do a show of hands. But um, the Apostle Paul is writing this letter from a jail cell. We don't know exactly what it looked like. We don't know how terrible the conditions were. Uh, some scholars think he was under house arrest, so he may not have had some terrible conditions, but you can imagine that if he was in an actual prison, he, he would have had some pretty poor conditions. I mean, first century Rome, probably not good. Regardless, whether he's in house arrest or whether he's in this, you know, stinky, damp, dank prison cell regardless of the fact he he's in prison and i don't know about you but when i'm in circumstances that i'm not thrilled about my attitude is is not oozing joy and hope and other centeredness like we read about here in the book of philippians one of the reasons i'm so excited about this book is that paul teaches us and paul's going to talk to us about living faithfully living joyfully living in unity living with hope even in the midst of some of life's most difficult circumstances and trials. This book is going to talk to us about a lot of things that meet us right where we are today. This isn't just a a first century book that's so uh, culturally bogged down that we can't make any sense of it and certainly any sense of what it means for us in 2023 in central Michigan. This book is chocked full of application, of hope, of Christ-centeredness. We need this book for so many reasons. The, the title of today's message is Of Servants, Saints, and a Savior, and we're just going to look at the first two verses of this passage, uh, but before we do, I want to give you just a little bit of an introduction. My, uh, my slide's disconnected, so if you guys wouldn't mind showing us the map. the, the This was The Apostle Paul helped plant this church in Philippi. Now, when it comes to some of this background stuff, I I already like history and I'm studying this stuff and I I could kind of geek out and go a long ways into this. And so I just try I just want to try to give you a little bit of a flavor or a little bit of taste. But if 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 there's one or two of you that kind of geeks out on background and cultural stuff and everything, I can send me an email and I'll send you some some links and some things to read. But I just want to just give you the, the fly over here. So Philippi, you can kind of see it's located in modern-day modern, modern day Greece. And this this is where the Apostle Paul, uh, r- is. he began his second missionary journey, you can read about this at the end of Acts 15 and then into Acts chapter 16. He and Silas were getting ready to go out. Do you remember Paul had been ministering with Barnabas? He and Barnabas had this big falling out, this big fight over whether or not to take John Mark, because John Mark had ditched them before, and Paul's like... He's a loser. I'm not going to take him. And Barnabas is like, we need to give him another chance. And Paul is like, you can give him another chance. I'm taking Silas, and we're going to go. Uh, so these guys weren't perfect. These guys butted heads. They had issues. That's, a, that's another sermon that we could talk about that. But So Acts chapter 16 starts, and Paul and Silas begin their missionary journey. And Paul sees a vision. We call it the Macedonian vision, and he is being led. He, he believes by the spirit of God to go in this direction. And one of the first places he stops is in the city of Philippi. Now, Philippi is a city that's been around quite a long time. By the time that Paul reaches uh, its its gates, it was established in the year um, three sixty five or three fifty six BC. It was established by a guy by the name of Philip II of Macedon, which probably doesn't like stir your hearts in any way. You're like, oh yeah, Philip. Well, you may not know Philip, but you know his much more famous son. His son was a man by the name of Alexander the Great. So Alex's dad founded Philippi, and of course he named it Philippi because, well, he could. Why not name it after himself? So this became an important city, uh, even after the Romans conquered the area around 168 B.C., it, 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 they kind of annexed it and brought it into their culture. They, they, they made a major trade route through there. Um, and uh, it, became a, it became an important Roman city here uh, for the Roman Empire. Uh, this city also shows up in secular history in an important battle. In 42 B.C., the plains of Philippi, were the scene of the battle where Mark Antony and Octavian defeated the Republican forces of Brutus and Cassius, you know, the assassins of Julius Caesar, and you read about in William Shakespeare. And so uh, this was an important city, a city that shows up in history, and uh, it, by the time it gets to the um, uh, the Apostle Paul's time, it was a city of about 10,000 uh, people, um, so not gigantic by that by that by standards of those days but certainly uh, not uh, not teeny and insignificant either it was it was a very important city along trade routes and so the apostle Paul comes to Philippi with Silas in in around AD 49 or uh, 48 48 49 somewhere in there and he and Silas arrive this is the first church that's planted in Europe this is a, this is a, this, Philippi marks a new chapter for the Apostle Paul in his ministry. Up until now, he's gone to cities with large Jewish populations, and he'll go to the synagogue to preach the gospel, and you see him, while he preaches to Jews, he, or Gentiles, he typically will start with the Jews, and then go from there to proclaim the gospel. However, Philippi is the first primarily Gentile, almost exclusively Gentile city. There's almost no Jews in this city, and, and, and Paul and Silas come into this city, and you can read this in Acts 16, and I'm just going to summarize the story for you real quick. It's, it's a great story to, to check out. Uh, the, the, uh, Paul and Silas arrive, they begin looking, and, and they, they find a, they're looking for a place of prayer, the text tells us, and they find a, a, a God-fearing woman, her name's Lydia, And she's down by the river praying. Lydia didn't know about Jesus, but she had understood some of the Jewish faith. She understood that there was one God, and she was doing her best to worship him. And so the Apostle Paul and Silas come and teach her about Jesus, how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament hopes and expectations. And she puts her faith, the text is beautiful, it says the Lord opened her heart to believe the things shared with her by the Apostle Paul. And so she becomes saved, the text Tells us that she's a seller of purple, which um, indicates most scholars say that she's probably a, a wealthy businesswoman. That, that was would have been a pretty exclusive textile, and so she she was she was probably a, a, an important person in that community, and someone that had some connections. And so they began going around sharing the gospel, and, and people are getting saved. Well, something happens that sort of upsets the whole apple cart. There's a slave girl that begins following after them and and kind of shouting out and proclaiming uh, that that this is a a preacher here. And and the the text says that Paul got so annoyed after several days of this girl following and shouting that he he casts a demon out of her. The text tells us that she had a demon that allowed her to be able to be a fortune teller and her slave owners made money off of her uh, because, uh, well, they had an in-house fortune teller. And so this demon was cast out. She lost that ability, and their slave owners got upset. Their their source of income dried up. And so they stirred up the city, got a a mob together, had Paul and Silas beaten and thrown into prison. So second missionary journey is off to a little bit of a rough start. You're in prison in the first city you, you stop at. And you spend any significant time in, but, but God has been good to them. And it te- the, the story tells us that Paul and Silas, that night they're in prison, and what are they doing? The, and and this, this, this tells us about the heart behind the man who's writing Philippians from another imprisonment, a later on imprisonment, about, about 15 years later after this story in Acts 16. And, and, and he and Silas are sitting in prison, and the text tells us that they're, they're, they're worshiping God and singing hymns. And they're praying. Can, can you believe it? Out of all the things to be doing, I mean, they're not fretting, they're not freaking out, they're not calling their lawyers, they're, they're, they're in chains, and they're worshiping God, and they're praying to God. I would, I would have loved to, to be able to be a fly on the wall there and just hear what was the prayers that were, were going forth from heaven, because or going forth toward heaven, because I, I have a feeling I'm sure they prayed to be released, but I have a feeling that at, the, at the, the forefront of their mind were these believers that were on the other side of the walls that had just gotten saved, and their hearts were for th- these men and women who were just beginning to grow in their faith, just beginning to start in their faith. And they, I'm sure they were praying for them and for their hearts. And, and so the text tells us that there's an earthquake, and the doors are flying open of the, the cells. Just, it was clearly a supernatural event. Because the jailer comes up and it says that he's ready to kill himself. He thinks the prisoners have taken off. And Paul and Silas said, no, 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 we're all still here. And, and, and the, the jailer famously said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? That's the reason I say it was a supernatural event because that, that, the, the, it, he was not just simply looking at the logistics of the situation like, oh, wow, there's an earthquake and all the, the doors are not sitting properly on their frames. Like, we got to do something about this. Like, he clearly saw that God was doing something here and, and he needed this God. And, and Paul and Silas famously at, answer in verse 31, Acts sixteen thirty one believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. And so that man and his, home, and his whole family got saved that, that very night. Well, the, the officials of the city found out that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. They'd made a big mistake because you're not allowed to beat a Roman citizen. And so uh, they just basically said, hey, you guys just need to leave here. We just, we just need you to go. And, and Paul and Silas moved on from there to Thessalonica. That's how the church at Philippi was born. So fast forward about 15 years, it's around AD 62, and Paul is once again imprisoned. This is not just a one evening sort of a situation. Paul's been in prison for some time now. We don't know exactly where he is. Tradition says he was in Rome at this point. Uh, other scholars think he could have been in Ephesus. Like I said at the beginning, we don't really know even how, just how the, the con- what the conditions were like. But we know that he's, he's in prison. Timothy is with him. So whether Timothy is in jail, or more likely, Timothy is there visiting him and being there for encouragement and to to write the the letter down. And and, and Paul has Timothy penned this letter to the Philippians, and he writes it for several reasons. I'll just touch on a couple. He writes it as a thank you letter. He wants to let them know that he's thankful for their financial support of his ministry. If you get to the end of the letter, you'll discover that they helped they helped provide for his financial needs. They sent one of their, their young ministers by the name of Epaphroditus. What a great name. They sent Epaphroditus to Paul with this gift. While Epaphroditus was visiting Paul, Epaphroditus got deathly sick and almost died, the text will tell us, in chapter 2. And Epaphroditus now is recovered, and Paul is sending him back to his his church family in Philippi with this thank you note, and letting them know, hey, listen, you're, you're emissary, he's, he's okay, he's doing fine, he's recovered. And uh, it's also clear that Paul's writing this to let them know how he's doing, sort of give a personal update. They had heard he was in prison, they're concerned about his welfare, and he's sort of letting them know what God's been up to, this chapter that... We, we just heard read the, the Paul's describing what he's experiencing in prison what his emotions are what he's thankful for and he's letting them know that he's okay even though there's a chance there, there's a very real chance he'll be executed he, he, he says that they're like it's possible I'm, I'm gonna die here and I might not make it out but he says either way I want Christ to be honored although he ends, with some hope that, and, and thinks that he probably will be released and, and he, church history tells us that he did get released for a time and was able to minister again for a while before he was ultimately um, imprisoned again and, and ultimately executed for his faith he's also writing this letter, and you see this in chapter three to warn about some Jewish false teachers, some some teachers that were either already there or were going to come that It's not really clear, but they were adding things to the gospel. You need to to obey the law. You need to be from this lineage. You need to be circumcised. And Paul was warning them to be on the the lookout for those who would distort the gospel. And finally, he's writing so that he might encourage them to make progress in the faith. And he's going to tell them several different ways he wants to encourage them to grow in their faith. But one of the themes that we'll see over and over again is the theme of unity. He's exhorting them to be united, to get along. Those of you with, uh, uh, with multiple children in the home, you know that, that you don't just have to tell your kids one time, hey, I want you to get along with one another. And then you can sort of put that commandment on the shelf and you don't have to worry about it because they're going to listen to you for the rest of their days under your roof. You know that it is, a, it is a command that needs to be repeated, an exhortation that needs to be rekindled again and again and again. Hey, get along. Hey, get along. Well, even in these four chapters, Paul is going to repeat it several times. In fact, when you get to chapter 4, he's even going to call out a couple people by name who were, who were squabbling a little bit. And so, uh, th- this, is, this is a main theme of the book. Joy in the midst of, of trials and suffering is another one that will, will come up. And what you can't miss is the, the overall Christ-centeredness that, is, that permeates the book. Uh, I, was, I was doing some reading and studying, and uh, near as I can count, Paul mentions the name of Jesus 48 times. In these 104 verses, in these four chapters, so every, about every four verses, Paul is mentioning Jesus, Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus Christ, Christ, some form of Jesus' name. Paul, Paul, You can see that Paul is inviting the Christians in, in Philippi into this Christ-centered way of life. He's showing them what it looks like as he describes his present conditions and his attitude in the midst of his imprisonment. And then he's going to exhort them into that Christ-centeredness. At the, at the center of this book, at the, 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 the kind of the majestic, magisterial centerpiece of this, this book is the Christ hymn that we're going to encounter in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. A beautiful piece of worship. But in our couple minutes here remaining, I, I want to just sort of break this Christ-centered focus uh, in, into just three three main thoughts or ideas, because we're going to see the Christ-centered focus in in these two verses, these first two verses, just jump immediately off the page. It, it'll let us know where where Paul's heart is going throughout the next four verse or four chapters, as we see Jesus' name mentioned three times in these first two verses. And so I want to just kind of use that that reference to Christ to sort of frame our outline. The first thing we see is is the servants of Christ. The servants of Christ. And that's how Paul introduces himself and Timothy. They're servants of Christ Jesus. As we mentioned, Timothy's with Paul, probably is is a visitor, probably there to encourage and strengthen him and and accompany him as as he's uh, in in prison. And what, what what a beautiful thing... To know that he had a companion like that who would be there with him in the midst of his suffering. It's just important to stop here for a second and remind ourselves how important it is to have companions like that in the faith. To have people in our lives who will sit with us in prison, as it were. Sit with us in our suffering. Sit with us in our pain. But in order to have that, we also need to be people who do that. We can't just expect people to do that in our lives if, if we're not other-centered that way ourselves. God calls us to be people who bear one another's burdens, and Timothy was that for Paul. We could say a lot about their relationship. Paul uh, viewed Timothy like a spiritual son in the faith, and Timothy was a constant companion of him uh, in his ministries throughout Macedonia and Achaia, and later on as a, as a church planner, and Paul exhorting and encouraging him In the books of 1st and 2nd Timothy. But notice he introduces them as servants of Christ Jesus. Most of our translations uh, translate this as as servant. That's probably not the best translation. Most translators steer away from the more literal translation because of some of the connotations. But the, the more literal translation is slave or bond slave of Christ Jesus. For obvious reasons, we get a little nervous when we're talking about slavery. the the In the Roman world, to be a slave uh, was it was not parallel to what we think of as the slavery that we experienced in Europe and in our country uh, um, not all that long ago. Slavery was not based on race, and, and 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 you weren't there. There wasn't the quite the level of being treated like an animal. There. There was often uh, they were often slaves because of choice, or because of family lineage. Uh, it, it wasn't. At the end of the day, though, it still wasn't a good situation. You, you didn't want to be a, a a slave in society. You didn't want to be a slave in the culture. It, it was definitely a, a negative thing. You were not your own. You didn't get to make your own decisions. You didn't have your own possessions. And Paul here he borrows the term from their culture and he says, "Listen." Timothy and I, were bond slaves of Jesus Christ. Think of all the ways that that Paul could have introduced this letter. He could have reminded them, listen, I'm I'm your spiritual father. I'm the one that helped plant this church. I was there right from the very beginning. He could have reminded them of his pedigree and all the things that he had done over the last 15 years since he had been there, all the other churches he'd planted, all of his other accomplishments and letters that he had written. He doesn't go to any of that. He starts off and introduces himself as one who belongs to Jesus Christ. That's how he saw himself. He was not his own. He didn't set his own agenda. He didn't demand his rights. He wasn't pointing to himself. He wasn't out there looking out for number one. He saw himself as one who belonged to Jesus. He was not his own. As he is going to speak to Issues of unity and infighting and bickering. Paul wanted to lead the way with his own example from his own life. He said, listen, Jesus has called me to be fully devoted to him, belonging only to him. That's the life that we're called to embrace. My brothers and sisters... How is it that we see ourselves? How do we, view, how do we view our position before God? Do we see ourselves as somebody who is God's gift to the body of Christ and I'm going to do my things my own way and God's lucky to have me on his team? Or do we take the position of a servant? even lower, that of a bond slave. Paul wants these believers to know that that they are servants of Jesus Christ. Everything, everything is in Christ, of Christ, by Christ, and for Jesus Christ, as Paul writes. He's the basis of their common existence. He's the focus and content of the gospel that Paul and Timothy and the Philippians have partnered in. He's the Lord to which every knee will bow. It's not about Caesar. It's about bowing to Jesus and being a bond slave of Christ. He wants the Philippians to capture that mindset. He's going to say that in chapter 2. We're called to be people who are servants of Jesus, enslaved to Christ. Not enslaved to our own passions, not enslaved to our own wills, not enslaved to the culture, but bond slaves of Jesus Christ. The, th- the second thing that he mentions is that they're saints in Christ. They are saints in Christ. He writes the letter in verse 1 to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Now, what comes to mind when you hear the word saints? Maybe, uh, maybe an NFL football team, it is... You know, game starting a little bit here. Maybe, maybe you think of those those who have uh, spiritual leaders throughout the centuries who have distinguished themselves and and and, and maybe uh, are are lifted high by the church. But here, Paul addresses all of the Christians in Philippi as saints. To all the saints in Christ Jesus. This is not a a one time reference. He does this frequently in his epistles. This is something that he calls the Christians who are there. He he refers to them as saints. He, He takes it right to the top. He says, Listen, I want you to know that you are set apart by God. That's what that word means. You're set apart exclusively by God for Jesus. You are saints in Christ. That being a saint doesn't mean that you're perfect. That's how we use it, or usually we use it kind of mockingly, like, oh, you're some saint, or you know, just some kind of sarcastic way. Paul's not using sarcasm here. He wants them to know that they're viewed by God as set apart and holy, which is great because my life doesn't always measure up that way. Like, it's not about how I feel God thinks about me, It's about what God thinks about me in Jesus Christ. And in Christ, Paul says, you're saints, you're declared righteous, you're set apart as holy ones. Their sainthood is a direct result of their relationship to Jesus. Saints in Christ. We're going to see this phrase over and over and over again in the book of Philippians. Some 20 times we're going to see Paul talking about us being in Christ. Phrases like that. This talks about our union with Christ. It's such a crucial concept to the New Testament. We'll spend some time and we'll we'll touch on it again and again. There's no other book in in, in Paul's letters that has such a high concentration of that, that phrase besides Ephesians and Philemon. Philippians is a Christ-centered book, and it reminds us that our life is centered in Christ. I love that Paul, right here in the very first verse, he, he reminds us that we are both bond slaves and saints. And, and, and if you think about it, the, the two sort of sound like opposite ideas. That, that I'm I'm a saint, and I'm set apart by Christ, but yet, I'm also a slave of Christ. And what's cool is that, see, if either idea, if you run with either idea too far, you can get some really bad theology. If you run with the saint idea too far, you can begin to think that you are God's gift to the body of Christ, that you're the, you're the most amazing thing that's ever walked through the doors of a church, you know, and that, that, that sort of that self-esteem thinking on steroids, and then if if you run with a bond slave idea too far away from the scriptures, you can begin to think I'm this no-good worm. I don't I don't belong anywhere near the body of Christ. I'm just useless. I'm I'm just I'm just pathetic, worthless chattel. And that's that's not true either. So Paul, right at the very get-go, says we need to have a balanced view of the Christian life. We're slaves of Jesus. We're not our own. We don't get to we don't we don't set the agenda for our lives. Jesus does. But you're also not, you're not worthless scum. You're, you're saints in Christ. In him, you have value. You're precious in his sight. And we're going to see that as the book goes out. Paul, the book goes on and on. Paul will, will talk about who they are in Christ. What a beautiful, uh, beautifully bringing together these two ideas that it, it, at first glance could be sort of polar opposites. He also includes the overseers and the deacons. The overseers were the elders of the church. You read in Acts 20 how Paul uses that term synonymously. The deacons were those who served and met the physical needs of the church. You can read about that in Acts chapter 6. And and Paul wanted to bring attention to the leadership of the church. I think as is, is they're getting to as is, is he's going to be getting to this call to unity, I think he's bringing the leadership in to say, hey listen, you guys play a part in this. You need to You need to you're involved in helping bring the church together. So I'm, 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 I want you to know that I'm addressing you guys too. We're saints in Christ. My brothers and sisters, I don't know how you view yourself in Jesus. But the word of God says that you're a servant of Jesus and you're a saint in Christ. Don't forget either of those. Forgetting one or the other will, will, will cause a distorted perspective on who you are in Christ, how you view yourself and what you're supposed to be doing. And then finally, verse 2, we get to the blessing from Christ, and technically the Father, but I, I wanted all the, the notes to lo- align, so I kind of cheated a little bit. But he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how Paul opens his letter. And I love this, I'm just going to mention this briefly. It, normally a letter in those days when you would write it, you would use the Greek word uh, karein, which is simply the word greetings. Howdy, everybody! When we when we were kids, I don't know if they still teach it now in school how to write a, a formal letter, but you know, you knew how to you were you were taught how to how to start a letter, dear so and so, or to whom it may concern. There were several certain ways in which you should you should begin this letter, and, and so the normal way would have been to use karein greetings, but Paul doesn't do that. He does a play on words. And he sort of modifies it to make it his own, and it becomes kind of his own trademark. He does this in other letters. Rather than the word karen, he uses the word charis. Begins with the same letter of the Greek alphabet, but it's a different word altogether. It's the word grace. Rather than greetings to you, he says grace to you. He says, I'm bringing grace. I come bearing grace. I want to see God's grace poured out and evident in your life. I want to be a person who bears a message of grace? I mean, what what an outlook! What if we got up every morning and we had like, just you know, I don't. I mean, I don't know how you see it. Whether you like attach it in front of your face, or you, I guess if you put it on your phone, since we're constantly looking at those dumb things, that maybe that would remind us. But if we just went before us, saying, "I want to be a person of grace today." I want to be a bearer of grace. I want to be a bringer of grace. When you walk into a room, what what goes through people's minds? What what do people expect when they see you show up? Dads, when you walk through the door at the end of the day, what what are you bringing into the door? What are we we bringing in there? Moms, when when our kids come home from school, what, what what are they coming home to? May may we be people who are are bringers of grace, of God's unmerited kindness and favor. It doesn't mean that we're all just rainbows and sunshine and we never say anything hard. That's that's not what Paul's about because he's going to say some hard things to these Christians. But even in that, it's grace because his heartbeat is to see them conform to the image of Jesus. Not, how dare you and you messed up and knock it off. But his heartbeat is grace. I want to bring the grace of Jesus to bear in your life. You guys are fighting over here. You're not getting along. I want, I want you to see the grace of God that brings you together in unity. Not a knock it off, why can't you just get along? But a but a look how Jesus has brought us together into a family through his shed blood and his love. Let's, let's work together in unity in in harmony for the cause of the gospel. That's the perspective of grace. Paul was one who wanted to bring grace, and he, he begins this letter with grace. And grace, the unmerited kindness of God, will permeate these four chapters. But it's not just grace. He also adds to the traditional greeting with the word peace. Grace and peace. What, what beautiful virtues, what beautiful gifts from God that each and every one of us sitting here today needs this morning. If, 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 if there's anybody here who has had more than enough grace and peace in their lives, feel free to leave early for lunch. You, you, you don't need the rest of this. You're good. Every single one of us needs the kindness and gentleness and favor of God on a daily basis. And every single one of us needs more peace in our life. We need more peace in our hearts. We need more peace in our home. We need more peace in our workplaces. We need peace in our church family. We long for that play. That, th- this word means harmony, tranquility, wholeness, well being. Who doesn't want that? Who who won't say, yeah, I'll take another helping, please, of some tranquility, of harmony, and well-being? Yes, please. It's the grace of God that leads to the peace of God. It's the, the being reconciled in Christ that enables us to experience peace at the deepest level. The result of God's grace in our life is peace. And nothing but God's grace could truly give us Peace with God. In chapter four, he's going to talk about it as peace that passes all understanding. I can't wait to come back to that passage. Peace that that, that people can't figure out. A calmness that doesn't make sense. I, I know. I know. I've told this story before, but and I, and, I'm, and I'm not. I, I don't hear it as as a. Uh, I don't want this to come across in a proud way I'm just sharing a, a time where we experienced This peace that didn't make sense I still remember when Owen was just A few weeks old And he got extremely sick And we had to take him to um, uh, Helen DeVos Hospital down in Grand Rapids And, and uh, he'd been to the doctors The doctors like like I'm going to call ahead, they'll have a bed for him um, you, need, you need to get down there immediately And, and so Elise is like, I'll drive and I think she made it to Grand Rapids. I think we got there in about an hour, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, and so we got Owen there, and we got him checked into the room. And and we weren't in that room. I I don't think 15 minutes, even maybe not even 10 minutes. And all of a sudden, Owen stopped breathing. He had gotten so weak and he was so sick at that point that he he stopped breathing. And immediately there were there were nine or ten people just surrounding him and i just remember elisa and i just went in the corner and we just started praying we we couldn't do anything we're not medical professionals there's nothing we could do to fix the situation and we knew we just needed to pray we knew we needed jesus in that moment and i'll I'll tell you what that the, the common sense would have been would have said you need to be freaking out right now you need to be yelling instructions at the doctors and nurses and telling them how to do their job and you need to be pacing and frantic and making phone calls and and I'll tell you what, this overwhelming peace came over the two of us. I, I, I have zero explanation for it. The, 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 there's nothing naturally within us that should say, well, just because of your your natural demeanor, that, that's, that's how we're going to explain this situation. It was, a, it, was, it was the peace of God that Philippians 4 says that passes all understanding, that guards your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. I'll tell you what, when we're in the midst of chaos, and even when it's not on the level of, Baby in the hospital chaos. Maybe it's just the like the low drum background noise of chaos that each and every one of us face every single day. There's a peace out there that passes all understanding that God offers to His children. It doesn't mean that all the, the stuff's going to go away. Paul was still in prison as he wrote this letter. But he knew that there was a peace that could be experienced in Christ as we receive the grace of God, and as we cast our cares upon him, we can can have that peace. And Paul wanted these Christians to know grace and peace. Brothers and sisters, do you know that today? Do you know the grace and peace that only comes from God? I pray that you, you've come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior and that you, you can experience that because you've trusted in him. That's the only way. And, and if you haven't done that, come up and chat with me afterwards. I want to tell you about how Jesus can give you peace. But maybe you are a follower of Christ and, and you, sort of, you sort of lost this, this focus that says, I, I need you, Jesus, every moment for my peace. And maybe you've been trying to find peace in other places, maybe vegging out, Maybe in going to the fridge or shopping or whatever it is, we, we look for this peace and this contentment in, in other places, or maybe staying busy. And God has called us to find it in Jesus Christ. This morning, won't you return to the one who longs to give you his grace and peace? And there's no better way to start uh, by celebrating the Lord's table together and taking this moment here to quiet our hearts and to say, I need you, Jesus. I need you right now. We have the bread and the juice that represents the body and the blood of Jesus Christ that he has shed for us. It's because Jesus went to the cross and took our sins upon himself and rose again from the dead that we can have the hope of grace and peace only through him. And so we come together this morning as God's family, and we get to celebrate the Lord's table by quieting our hearts and and, and thanking Him and receiving this grace, the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, we want to invite you to celebrate with us. And in just a moment, like we usually do, I'll just be quiet in here and and give you a chance in the quiet of your heart to to talk to Jesus, whatever is on your heart, and whatever you want to bring before him. Um, After a moment of quiet, I'll pray, and then we want to just invite you to come up out of your seat, uh, and and our worship team will lead us in a song, and just come up out of your seat and and take some bread, take juice. I believe this side over here has some gluten-free bread if, if you need that. Um, that you also see offering plates that are there That uh, if you feel led to give uh, over and above your normal giving that, that money that is on the table there goes to our benevolence fund To help those in our church family in need And, and just um, one more logistical note There, there are two sets uh, at each table Two sets of bread, two sets of juice And so um, as, you, as you come out, if you form two lines on, on each side um, we can help with the, some of the traffic flow a little bit better So if you're on this side of the room, if you come to this aisle here and, and form two lines And then this side of the room, you can form two lines and it'll just be a little, little easier But whatever, as long as you get up here, we want to be able to celebrate the Lord's table with you And uh, so let's just take a moment and, um, and thank, thank Jesus for what he's done And for the grace and peace that are offered to us in him Father, you bring to mind these beautiful passages that tell us all that's true of us in Christ. In Romans 8, you tell us there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation, and you bring grace, you bring peace. I pray, Father, that each and every person here today would experience the grace that can only come through Jesus Christ, the peace that can only come through Jesus Christ, in a powerful and a real way today. Lord, meet them where they are and whatever they might be going through. I pray, Father, that you would help each of us to remember who we are in Christ, that, that we're, we're bond slaves of Jesus. We belong to him. We're not our own. But also that we're, we're saints in Christ. We've been set apart those who are devoted to you, as those who have been chosen by you for your very own. I pray, God, that we would see our value in Christ. Thank you, Father, for the hope of the gospel. We thank you for the Lord's table that we can celebrate by partaking of, of that which reminds us of the blood and the body of Jesus, the body that was broken, the the, the the blood that atones for our sins Father we thank you for washing away our sins through the, the blood of Jesus through the finished work of Jesus and now we're brought into your family and united to, to Christ himself a glorious reality that I, I don't fully grasp and we can be partakers of this divine nature Peter tells us and experience the grace that flows through Christ in our lives the peace that flows through Christ into our lives. Thank you, God, for these truths. May you nourish our hearts today as we celebrate the table of Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please come.
0: speaks a better word than all the empty claims I've heard upon this earth speaks righteousness for me and stands in my defense it's only by your blood your blood speaks a better word than all the empty claims I've heard upon the earth, speaks righteousness for me and stands in my defense, Jesus it's your love. but you What dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, covenant, equip you with every good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.